Good morning. Please stand for the scripture reading. Today's passage is Psalm 134. On the Blue Bibles, it's page 299. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of those as a gift. Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Gloria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We love your word, God. Lord, your word is life to us, and we thank you for that. God, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Lord, as we look at this last song of ascent from your holy book of praise, the book of Psalms, we ask that you would use it, Lord, to enlighten us about things, about this life that you've called us to, as you have done for the last 14 chapters. And so Lord, we pray that our hearts would be attentive, Lord, that you would clear out all distractions and obstacles to hearing the word today, that that you would allow us to here as spiritual people and to grow from what we hear. Lord, I pray as I do each and every week for myself, Lord, that you would uh, make me to uh, reflect your holiness and to to speak with faithfulness, Lord, and to not uh, be an obstacle to the truth of your word that that you have given to us so graciously. So I ask all this in the name of Jesus, uh, the, the Son of God, the mighty champion of our faith. I thank you for that. And I thank you for the blessings that your word promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, about 16 weeks ago, we started a series in the Songs of Sins. And some of you have been here for some of them. Some of you have been here for most of them. A few of you have been here for all of them. But this is it. This is the final psalm, Psalm 134. And in a way, it's the conclusion of a spiritual journey wherein our journey of the Christian life has been kind of analogized by uh, the, pilgrim of, the pilgrimage rather of ancient Jews that were going to the temple in Jerusalem, as we've said over and over again, to worship, to sacrifice the appointed festivals of God. And it would be easy to argue that this final song is the most simple um, in, in its content. I, I remember learning this passage through a, a worship chorus that we sang in my church when I was a little kid, and it just kind of stuck with me because there's three short verses. There's not a lot to it on the surface when you look at it. Um, in fact, this its simplicity is found in that it literally only has two parts. The first, uh, it's three short verses, and, and those three short verses, they begin with a greeting and an exhortation to the Levites and the priests who would stand guard during the night watches of the temple. What you understand that the temple uh, standing there in Jerusalem had people at there all night long. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And they were there were people who were guarding it, people who were doing things to prepare for the next day's sacrifices, and they were there all night long. So this song begins with people crying out a greeting and an exhortation to those uh, those guardians of the temple. And it concludes with the response of those priests to the returning pilgrims in verse 3. Let me kind of 
break this down for you. So the picture that we're giving, given in Psalm 134 is of the people who have now, you know, we, as we said again over and over, who have come and fulfilled their joy and their obligation in coming to the temple, offering sacrifices, and now the, the, the festival is over. They're returning, preparing rather, to return to their homes, and they call out to the ones who would remain in Jerusalem and who are ministering in the place where God's glory dwelt. So they're making this last exhortation to them, And we can imagine them leaving very early in the morning um, because think about where they live geographically on this planet. Uh, They wanted to get out of town before the sun had risen and and they they wanted to travel as many miles as possible through the desert back to their home before the sun reached its blazing point um, and, and became unbearably hot. So taking one last look, everything's packed up, the kids are in the minivan, the tent's all packed up, they turn around and they look at God's glorious temple and they shout, literally shout out together to the guardians standing on its walls. And they say, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the holy place. And bless the Lord. And so they're encouraging them to keep up their service. They're giving them one kind of an attaboy. Keep at it. Keep working in the ministry of the Lord. Keep welcoming people like us. Keep helping with the sacrifices and keeping the the holiness of God uh, on display for all the people of Israel. If you understand the Levitical uh, system that at any given time in the temple, there were 24 Levites. Levites were just the people that, that assisted with the priesthood. The priesthood came out of the tribe of Levi, but all of the tribe of Levi wasn't priests. The, the, the Levites, the, the, who were not priests, were assistants in the temple ministry, in the Levitical ministry. And so there were 24 Levites and three priests on duty round the clock. And And I can just imagine them as they have just gone through a festival week and they're exhausted, plus they've been up all night long doing what they were doing, that they might be fighting a little drowsiness. And then with one unified voice, this call comes forth from the congregation and you better believe it woke them up. They hear, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the holy place, bless the Lord. And so they do what is natural, that as they're filled with courage by this exhortation by the departing congregation, they return with the blessing of their own. They look back on the people, the, the gathered nation of Israel who is dispersing to go all to their homes, all over the land, and they say, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And what are they saying there? They're saying, hey, look, you came here to receive something. You came to Mount Zion. You came to the temple. And what we're praying for you is the blessings of the Lord of this place will keep you and guard you until you come back. Now, like other songs that we've examined, it would be easy for us to look at that historical background, what's actually happening in this psalm, and miss entirely the call and the encouragement and the instruction that comes to us as new covenant believers. But as we've said again over and over, that all of these things were written for our example, for our instruction. And so there's something here that we should pay attention to. But in this 
climax, in this, in this, you know, the end of the, of the, uh, the, the story of the songs of ascent, that you have this call to the priest and the response of the priest. We see three important elements of the spiritual life that we should probably pay attention to. What is it that makes a, a, a great foundation for a spiritual life? And those things we're going to talk about this morning are worship, their service, and watching, or we could call it waiting. So let's look at the scripture again. Verse 1, first half of it says, Come bless the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord. Now the encouragement to the Levites from the congregation and to their priests was to bless the Lord. Now I don't know about you, but when I first heard this terminology in scripture, and it's found in several places. One of the other Psalms says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. But the truth of the matter is, and I'm not trying to expose anybody worse than myself, because I'm probably the, the, in this, in this category, I may be the chief of sinners. I'm fairly certain of it, but I have to admit to you, when I go to prayer, my main motivation is not generally, shamefully, but not generally to bless the Lord. Most times when I go to prayer, what do I want? I want the Lord to bless me, right? I mean, you know, I'm more like, I'm more like Jacob holding on and saying, I'm not letting go to you bless me. But the, all throughout the Psalms, there's this, there's this, this, this call to bless the Lord. Now, let me ask you a series of, of very, you know, kind of Captain Obvious type questions. What does the Lord need from you? What? Y'all are too chicken now. What does the Lord need from you? Not a thing. What, through any service, worship, obedience, anything, what can you add to the Lord? What? What, what, So, if now that's true, what does it mean, really, to bless the Lord? What does that mean? So, let's go back to the priests. These priests had a difficult task. They were to keep watch over the temple. They were obviously to guard it from foreign invasions and from anything that would come in to defile it. The holiness of the temple was a really serious issue. But that wasn't all they had to do. If you flip all the way back to the book of Leviticus, where you only go to if your Bible plan tells you you have to, if you go to the book of Leviticus, you read this verse in uh, Leviticus 6-9. It says, Command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now, to keep the fire of the altar burning had to be a tedious task. All tasks are tedious at 3.30 a.m., I'm just telling you, there doesn't matter what you're doing, it is, it is tedious at 3.30 a.m. So this task was especially tedious as it was delegated to the graveyard shift. And year-round, in the darkness of night, these ministers would keep the fire burning, no how late the hour, no matter how cold the night air. And it's easy to imagine, none of us would judge these poor Levites too hard, as we imagine that doing so could become so mundane. You know, somebody's like, hey, Jedediah, throw another log on the fire and wake up, man. It could become so mundane, so routine, that they would occasionally lose all sense of the magnitude of their work. 
the bigness of their calling and just lose all of that. They might be found kind of just going through the motions, as we often say. And, and they might find that their hearts are not entirely engaged in the task to which God had divinely appointed them. Now think about that. They're going through the motions, but where are they? Out of all of Israel, all of Israel had just come, the entire congregation, maybe at some years, millions of them had come to the holy city. They were there to see this one place because that was the place God's glory dwelt. And his glory dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant in a manifest form. It was a beautiful thing. It was, a, it was an awe-inspiring, earth-shaking thing. And they, because of the mundane, routine nature of their day-to-day job, all of that was completely lost on them. They were stationed in the very house where God's glory dwelt, the magnificent temple where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. But familiarity unfailingly breeds contempt. And they needed a reminder of where they were and the high place they occupied in the people's worship. See, their main task, what I want you to see in all this, their main task wasn't fire maintenance. Their main task wasn't security detail. Their main task, because they were the priests of the Most High God, was worship. That was their main task. And when that got, when, when fire maintenance and security exceeded the worship, guess what happened? The worship suffered. The worship became less pure. The departing congregation would remind them with their call of the true essence of their work. So they exhorted these people, staying up all night, they said, hey, come bless the Lord. Come bless the Lord. Stir yourselves up. Do this with a heart for the God that called you and put you there. And to lift up your hands in the holy place. And so they were saying, look guys, we know you got to be here. But since you got to be here, perform your task with praise. And so what does it mean to bless the Lord? Well, simply, since God is pleased with the worship of his people. In fact, the Bible says that God literally dwells in habits, lives in the praises of his people. So God is found there. And since God is pleased with the worship of his people, to bless the Lord simply means to praise him. As I said earlier, it doesn't imply that we add anything to the Lord. If I worship God, his, his power bar will go up and he'll become more God. No, no, no. God is as God as he's ever going to be. But blessing the Lord just means that you recognize him not as some deity that you have to bow and sacrifice to, but you recognize him as a loving father who delights at your songs of praise and your smiles. It doesn't imply that we add anything to the Lord who's perfect and complete in himself. He needs nothing from us. To bless the Lord means that my heart recognizes his generosity, his kindness, his intervention in my life. And my heart is drawn out in love towards him because of it. As I said, it's the tender voice of a loving child telling his or her father how thankful and appreciative they are for the care and the love provided to them. This is what Psalm 69 says. It says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. 
They're saying these guys in a sacrificial system where a sacrificial system was in place, here the psalmist is saying, God doesn't want my cow. He wants my heart. And to lift, their, to lift their hands, it says, lift up your hands in the holy place. That's an outward physical sign of the genuineness of their worship. It shows them that they are surrendering to God's sovereignty and to God's wisdom, and they're acknowledging that He is above all and in control of all. So let's personalize this. How often, if we're honest, have we become familiar, so familiar, with the Lord, with His Word, with His ordinances, with the sheep of His flock, and His worthiness of our praise, that we find ourselves disengaged from His glory with hearts that grow colder by the minute. And let me, like those priests, let me remind you where you are, the place that you occupy. We are not calling you to this building or any other so that you can experience the manifest glory of God. The Bible says that you yourself are now that temple. That the Holy Spirit of God, the one that created worlds and, and, and worked in this plan of redemption that saved you in the first place, that that God dwells within you right now. You're a walking, talking, mobile temple. And His glory is there. And like me, if you're honest, there are probably many days you yawn right through that fact. God lives in you. Not a tiny teaspoon of God, but the full manifest power of all the triune deity lives in you now. And some of you in your Christianity, just throwing logs on the fire. Got to keep this burning. I don't want to go to church, but I got to throw a log on the fire. I don't want to give, but I got to throw a log on the fire. I don't want to read my Bible, but I got to throw a log on the fire. There's so much more magnitude to what you're doing than just throwing logs on the fire. Than standing guard against the devil who's trying to trick you. There's so much more to it than that. You are the temple of God. So come bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord. Even when you stand by night in the most routine, mundane parts of your life, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night. Come bless the Lord. Raise up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. So heed the call of these ancient pilgrims. Revive your memories of the promises and the power of His goodness and the grace. Lift up your hands in the holy place where you have been invited by the blood of Christ. No more throwing logs on a fire. No, we are here to worship. And I'm telling you, if we worship, that fire is going to stay burning. If we're committed to worship, if we're committed to lifting up our hands in the holy place, that fire is going to be blazing. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. What is the curtain? That is, the writer says, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. What is that saying? It's saying, come in. 
You are not barred from the temple. There's no guardian keeping you out of the temple. The owner of the temple has kicked open the door for you to come in through the blood of Christ. The next thing we observe is that while the heart of what we are called to do is is bound up in worship, we are still called to obediently serve. That's why the psalm says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Our motivation for uh, for service is the same as our motivation for worship. And the line between service and worship can become incredibly blurred. But the, the motivation is the same, the Lord's kindness to us. Now, we can't replace worship with service. That's what the Pharisees did. God doesn't want us to come near, as he says in Isaiah, to come near to him with our lips while our hearts are far from him. But part of our service, well, part of our service is worship, and none of our service is acceptable until it is mingled with worship. And, and it doesn't stop there because uh, at worship, our service is born out of worship, but service also involves obedience to everything the gospel demands, whether that means being a faithful spouse or an obedient child or a patient parent. It means sharing Christ with our neighbor or sharing resources with the poor. It means standing for justice and truth in the public square. It's all encompassing. It's, the, it's a life of service to the Lord. This is why Paul wrote, most of you are familiar with this passage, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's saying to present your bodies means to offer up your whole being to Christ, not just giving your heart to Jesus. No, Jesus demands that you give it all to him. He wants your mind, your hands, your feet, your mouth, along with everything else that's under your power, your family, your job, your money, your time, and your dreams. He wants it all. And lastly, Psalm 134 points to the need for watching or waiting Psalm 134, uh, 1, the rest of the verse says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, we already pointed out the men to whom verses 1 and 2 were addressed were ministers and guardians over the temple whose worship and service um, involved staying up all night long and making sure that the interests of God were prioritized that they were observed and that they were undefiled. So alertness and diligence were required of them. For these men on duty to fall asleep or to apathetically just give up, say, I'm not, I'm not calling into work today, would have brought great shame on them. It would have brought shame on their nation and worse yet on God's temple. Perhaps they were at times tempted to think, ah, surely a little nap won't hurt. Tonight's probably not the night where the barbarians will attack. Just another night, just like any other. And what if the worshipers, however, who came in the morning, sacrifices being uh, leading their sacrifices, what if they had arrived in the morning to, fire the, to find that the fire on the altar had gone out? What sacrifices and worship would have been delayed? What punishment would have rightly been given to those lazy servants. And here's my point. A lot of us have lived with such apathy, with such lack of concern for the things of God, no no faithfulness, no standing in the gap of faithfulness day in and day out that we let the fire go out. 
And there's people that need to know about Jesus that are arriving at the temple and they're saying, what do we do? I don't know, the fire went out. I have no clue. I can't help you. I can't even get my own fire going. And this is important. Because there's no such thing as Christianity devoid of watching and waiting. Watching and waiting is code word for faithfulness. Just standing there and doing what is right. Some of you have been praying for particular miracles for a long time. So you know what watching and waiting is all about. Others have wanted to receive grace desperately for habitual sins that still bog you down. So you know what watching and waiting is all about. Others have wept and wept for lost loved ones to come to the knowledge of Christ. So you likewise know what watching and waiting is all about. As believers, think of us as a corporate body. As believers, all of us are waiting for the return of Christ, for the full redemption of creation, for the resurrection of our glorified bodies. Watching and waiting is built into our faith because it keeps us pressing towards Christ. No one hopes, the Bible says, for the things that are manifest. They hope for the things that are unseen. And so it keeps us pressing towards Christ. It makes us less likely to forget Him if our longings have to be placed before Him day in and day out, night after night, to call out for Him in hope. Waiting allows allows us to shed all of our lesser priorities and come into the full knowledge of what is most precious. We too, just like those priests of old, we have to be alert and we have to be diligent. We can't be found spiritually sleeping like the disciples on the night Christ was arrested. He said, can't you just watch one hour? And they were sawing logs, man. They were, they were out. The principle of watching and waiting is why the Bible tells us certain things. It says, pray without ceasing. If God answered all your prayers within a 15-second time frame, how many of you would pray without ceasing? You'd pray, you'd get your thing, and you'd move on with your life. But it tells us to pray without ceasing. It, it, it tells us to let patience have its perfect work. It tells us that the one who endures to the end is the one who is assured of salvation. Hebrews 6 says this, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Nothing empowers our worship like watching and waiting combined with our service. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Worship in the middle of our waiting proves the reality of our faith and our surrender. Now, it's December, first Sunday of December. And it was really interesting when I was considering this, I thought of one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I was telling some guys at my house last night that in 1979, a movie about the life of Christ came out. And for the first time in my memory, this scene was depicted. The movie was made from the book of Luke. And it, this scene was depicted. And, and to my recollection, as a small boy, about probably eight years old in 1979, I did not remember um, this scene ever I mean, being read to me in a Bible story in, in you know, Sunday school or anything. 
But so I was considering this passage about watching and waiting. I thought of Simeon, the character we read about in the birth account of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 2. So here's the story. Jesus has been born. You guys know that part of the story. He's been uh, uh, laid in a manger in in Bethlehem. The angels uh, form a choir and tell shepherds they come and and see this amazing thing that has happened. And and we know that happens. Well, eight days later, the Bible tells us that, that they take the baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised. It's really interesting to me for comparison that this story happens in the temple. What have we been talking about for the last three months? And so in the temple, this is what we read. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, watch this, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in, in the spirit into the temple. And when the, uh, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. All of the elements we've discussed so far from our text are found in this little story. Simeon's heart was fully engaged in worship. He was not only righteous, the Bible says, but he was devout. He spent his days waiting for God's glory to be restored to Israel in the coming of the Messiah. Concern... For God's glory is the defining characteristic of a worshiper. A worshiper who is not concerned with God's glory is not a worshiper. Without it, our worship, without a concern for God's glory, our worship disintegrates into one of two things. First, it can be reduced into a more, a mere ceremonial religious observance where we engage in worship only because we're expected to, where we we seek a moral benefit, you know, uh, checking off a box before God, like the idolatrous Israelites who kept dragging their sacrifices to the temple year after year while engaged in all kinds of idolatry. And what we're not after, what we're clearly communicating when our hearts are like that, we're not after a reorientation of our hearts toward God, to desire God above all else. And second, without a view of God's glory, we will engage in worship only for personal benefit. What I mean by that is we'll walk into a worship service and we'll say, hey, well, what's in it for me? Am I going to be entertained? Am I going to be emotionally moved? Am I going to be somehow inspired? And this this becomes the measuring rod, entertainment and such things becomes the measuring rod for meaningful worship. But Simeon, what I want you to understand, was not only a devout worshiper, he was a servant. He was often found in the temple. I imagine he spoke often about the coming Messiah to anyone who would listen. And he talked about the promise God had made to him many years before that he would never die until he saw God's promise fulfilled. But most of all, Simeon expressed his worship and his service through waiting. Just Simple faithfulness, showing up to be obedient to God day in and day out. We have no idea how old Simeon was, but he was not a spring chicken in the vernacular. 
He was an old man, and he just kept coming back to the temple, knowing that one day he was going to shuffle in there, and God was going to show him the living Messiah right there on planet Earth. And so he expressed his worship through waiting. He was waiting for, in the words of the text, the consolation of Israel. And, and, and what that's, that means that the, the consolation, the, the relief that would come to Israel through the coming of the Messiah. And he awaited the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to him. And, the, and when the promise was final, finally fulfilled, did you notice in the text what it said he did? It said when he saw that baby, he took it in his arm and he blessed God. Isn't that interesting? Just like the priests and the Levites. And even when God fulfilled his word to Simeon, Simeon knew that there was more to come in this story. In our watching and waiting, and here's a really important thing, you are never, with, with the exception of your watching and waiting for the day of your resurrection, your watching and waiting is always a watch, watching and waiting for another piece in the puzzle, another piece that will further the gospel and, and bring a, a, a greater light to God's kingdom on earth. We know that everything God does leads to even greater revelations of his glory. No matter where we're at in the story, the story is not over. And so he saw that Jesus would be the agent of God's salvation, that he would even be light to the Gentiles. Jews didn't talk that way. He was saying this this Messiah is going to come and he's going to do more than just for Israel. He's going to call the Gentiles in. He would be the glory of Israel. And then he saw even more than that. He turns, and this is, this is the kind of interesting part of the story, beginning in verse 34. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword, he says to Mary his mother, who's eight days into the greatest joy of her life holding that little baby. And he says this, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So so let me just kind of summarize that for you. Simeon saw that Jesus would oversee a power shift from the the power of the law to the power of grace, to the power of, of uh, you know, a, a singular Jewish nation to a whole nation of priests from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he saw a, a, a coming day when the first would be last and the last would be first. He saw that many, even in his own nation, wouldn't be receptive to Christ the Messiah's ministry. And he even, he even saw that Mary would suffer as she witnessed the way her firstborn would be treated. And he said, everyone's thoughts are going to be laid bare. But in all of this, Simeon blessed God. He blessed Mary and Joseph. He was able to depart in peace, having seen the promise of God fulfilled. And this reminds us, this is the good news, that there is a payoff for all of our worshiping, all of our serving, and all of our waiting. There is a payoff coming. God will not forget us as we trust in him. As long as our watching, this is the key point, is based in a promise. Simeon's watching, his waiting was based in a promise. And sometimes we get so, you know, we'll we'll attach something to our own imagination and 
Say, the Lord told me that this is going to happen and people die not having seen that thing because they're not based in a promise or based in an imagination. This is why the word of God is so critical. It's so crucial. You'll never know what God has promised in reality if you neglect his word. You'll have nothing to stand on if you don't know it from his word. Don't rely on your vain and subjective imaginations about what God has said or promised. Look into His Word and know for sure what He has promised so that you can watch and you can wait in faith. Because every word, it says in Jeremiah, He told Jeremiah, I am watching over my Word to see that it's fulfilled. Numbers twenty-three nineteen, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So our text today and the songs of ascent in total, they end with a blessing. And the priests and Levites have heard the exhortation of the departing congregation of Israel and they respond in this way. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And those who are faithful in watching and waiting and serving and worshiping can not only rest assured of the fulfillment of God's promises, but in faith, they can bestow a blessing on the body of Christ as well. It is the watchers, the waiters, those who are faithful that bestow the most blessing back on the body of Christ. It was the Levites who were encouraged, hey, bless the Lord, worship the Lord. And guess what they did? They turned around and they blessed the entire congregation. Blessing would come from the Lord through Zion in this old covenant reality that that it was always from the the God who dwelt above uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. But in the New Covenant thinking, we see God blessing His people through the corporate watching, waiting, serving, and worshiping of the church. Because now, this is the place, this is the place, Not I don't mean this physical building, but this body all over the world is the place where the glory of God dwells. And so that's how blessing comes. It doesn't come from Zion. It comes from the body. It comes from the, the manifest body of Christ, which is you. The priests and the Levites remembered that he was the one who made heaven and earth. And this was their point. If God can create all of this vastness out of nothing, how could he be so powerless to rescue you? How, could, how, how much better should we who experience Christ's redemption, who have re- experienced it, understand the immensity of, your, of his power towards you? What did God spare? What, what wealth of God was spared in order to bring you into the kingdom? Nothing. The Bible says in Romans 8, he didn't even spare his own son. And it says, if our God, not even sparing his own son, did this, he said, what else is he not going to do for you? God is faithful. And so faithfully watch for him. Faithfully wait for him. As you worship and as you serve, See the Lord's glory manifest, not somewhere on a mountain, across the ocean, but through your very life. Can we stand together?
Once again, as we prepare to receive from the Lord's table, I am struck by how this simple sacrament, this ordinance that Christ gave us, reveals the beauty of this text. Because it says, you know, in the, in the text it says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are doing this as a, as a, a symbol. We're saying, God, we're waiting. We're waiting to see you. We're waiting for you to be revealed. We're watching. And in remembering his brokenness and, and his death, we're saying, but Lord, while we're doing it, we're going to worship you. We're going we're gonna to worship you and recognize that without you, we would be nothing. Without you, we would, we would have no hope of salvation. Without you, we'd already have, have been condemned to hell. And lastly, we're doing it in service because the Lord commanded this. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And he didn't do it just so we could have some, thing, some duty to fulfill. He did it because he knew this is life for us. This is life for the body. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, and however the, the Holy Spirit applies that word, to come to the table and come in worship, come in service, and come with joyful waiting, joyful waiting for the day when his glory is revealed in all of its fullness. And all of our waiting, all of our watching will be fulfilled in the light of his glorious face. Would you come and receive the elements and then go return to your seat and we will take these together? The beautiful instruction that Paul gave the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Lord, thank you for the promise that we will be fully saved, fully sanctified, free from sin. Thank you for the promise that this world is not subject to destruction, it's subject to redemption by your great power, that you are putting all of your enemies under your feet. We thank you, Lord, that you are not a God that forgets his children, but Lord, you, you are with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us, God, at the highest mountain, you're there even if we make our bed in hell, you are with us. And so, Lord, it is with that knowledge that we can worship you. It's with that knowledge that we can serve you. It's with that knowledge that we can continue in faithful waiting for you until you come. And until you come, God, we're going to eat this bread and drink this cup and proclaim to ourselves, to the world, to all the angels and demons in all creation, that we, our God reigns and he is returning for us. And we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would extend your hands in a receiving position.
and I will give you the original benediction. I love this, and it seems so appropriate for today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.